Okay, there is the authority and the subordinate authority. I can take the glasses off now so I can read my handwriting, which isn't easy to do as I get worse and worse at it. Uh, you'll notice that we're going to be back on November the 13th. Uh, this, so we're going back to back here, and that's because Lori is going to be gone for a couple of weeks, and I am going to fend for myself, and that will not end well. And so we'll deal with that as we go through it, but uh, that's what's happening. So that's why we're doubling up here so that we don't completely uh, void the, the month of November. Okay, here we go. November the 6th, 2022, lecture discussion number 185. On the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 3, Genesis 15. That's where we are as usual. Lecture number 184, which was on October the 23rd, uh, 2022. It's not on the board anymore. Um, that I concluded that. I concluded with the remarkable, adorable HDRP confidently uh, announcing that uh, super-deterministic Calvinism and temporal Arminianism both are simplistic concepts. They're both simple. And that tells you right off the bat there may be something askew here. And they both ultimately devolve into dishonor, into insolency, and uh, as to Psalm 36, 5 through 7. Psalm 36, 5 through 7 reveals the character of the Lord God of creation and makes statements about him that are amazing. Uh, it, in Psalm 36, 5 through 7 is the antithesis. It, it confronts Exodus 17, 1 through 7 and Numbers 23 through 6 and Numbers 21, 5 through 6. And that Psalm 36, 5 through 7 establishes the inviolable standard. And if you have this standard, it's going to make you avoid so many mistakes. It has an inviolable positioning here that the person of God, his mercy, his faithfulness, his righteousness, the depths of his judgment, his salvation of mankind and animals, how precious is his loving kindness. That's what it says about him. Okay, so you have to have a position. When your position doctrinally is coming to you or whatever you decide is correct, does it line up with the fact that God is faithful, that his, he has tremendous mercy, he's righteous, the depths of his judgment, how deep is his judgment? So think about what he's going to judge and how deep does his judgment go? How much depth does it have? How much depth does your position have? How complex is his mercy? If you have a position with respect to his mercy, how complex is it? Exodus 17, 1-7 and Numbers 23-6 and 21, 5-6, they diametrically oppose Psalm 36, 5-7. In other words, I have, and not just Psalm 36, 5-7, First John 4, 8 and First John 4, 16. When you look at what, how God is described and you start to say things that uh, do not, again, feather into that, you need to be very careful. You have to say to yourself, why do I have a position that attacks the character of God? And, of course, Exodus 17, 1-7 in the super-Calvinistic or super-deterministic Calvinist position they decree that God is evil. That's what you do. You have said God decrees evil. God is the author of evil. It's very common. The Armenianism position teaches that God cannot secure salvation. He won't. He won't do it. Both of those are against Psalm 36, 5-7. I hope that makes sense. Declaring God to be the author of evil... Uh, and to call him a liar and a, psycho a psychotic murderer, that's what happens in Exodus uh, 17, 1-7. That's what happens in a lot of these doctrines. You need to be really, really moved very carefully. And that's the absolute opposite of who he is. And, and you can see that Israel, what they're doing in 17, 1-7, what they're doing is very simple thought processes. They're juvenile. They're elementary processes. They're not complicated. They're thoughtless. You can make the case they're impotent, and if not outright profanation, heresy. That's what Israel's doing in 17, 1-7, calling God evil. So you just don't do that. I don't think you do that. I don't understand why you would want to do that. But to say that God is the one that is 
that is, has put evil into the creation. That's what they say. He is the one that has taken evil and has instituted it. That cannot be true, and it is not true, and you need to really concern yourself with being somebody that thinks it's true. Now, when I say things like this, as you might suspect, this makes the purveyors of both uh, super-deterministic Calvinism and temporal Arminianism, they're annoyed with your ambrosial HDRP here. And some might describe their combined response to me as indignant fury uh, and ferocious outrage. And both of those are intentional redundancies. Uh, So don't write me for those grammatists who leap upon these things. And I get it that all of what I've just said, all the affirmation that I just spewed out is pretty bold talk for a cyclopean, now cadaverous XY chromosome in the entity that I am. I got it. Uh, so I'm going to devote today, I shall today, begin the process of defending my pretty bold talk. And note that the, 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 the uh, note the noun process. This is a long fight. This is going to take a while. Pack a lunch, pack another lunch, then go get some more lunch. This is going to take a long time to get through all of these kinds of things. I actually began the fortification of what I just said is the is definitive of hyper Calvinism and and the, and the Armenianism position. I began that fortification on October twenty third, two thousand twenty two, lecture number one eighty four. For those of you who might have missed that, and for those of you who are otherwise betrothed. Uh, the foray in the 2022 Nobel Physics Prize awarded by Z- to Zellinger and Aspect and Clauser, that was my ex- initial fuselage here. Fuselade, I guess, is the most correct. And I promised to ver- provide a cursory understanding of Bell's inequality, or Bell inequality. I said I would try to get, get that information to where you have some formation of it and you've got a grip on it somewhere being that John Stuart Bell is critical to this debate. And why am I doing this? Why am I taking this, this on? And I knew as soon as I got the letter, can you please explain this? Uh, and I can't explain it. The issue is how, how long will it take? Why would I devote so much time to it? I'm going I'm to begin to say to you, how, cre- how complex is the creation? Because John Stuart Bell thought it was complex. How complex is your Bible? How complex is everything that God says? And I've always been frustrated by the church, uh, specifically this contemporary church of my time here, being intentionally ignorant of things like Bell's inequality. Alongside a Planck's conclusion as to the necessity of consciousness in the creation of all things, Max Planck said consciousness is absolutely fundamental. You have to have it in order to have creation. Bell's inequality, I believe, ranks alongside of Planck's conclusion. Both men, and there are many others, Erwin Erwin Schrodinger and Werner Heisenberg. I'm wearing Schrodinger's tie today. Can you see it? Okay, it's Schrodinger cat tie. Uh, They all made extraordinarily extraordinarily theological contributions. All of these guys did, and they feather and those those contributions feather beautifully with Scripture. And they probably didn't know it. Planck knew it. Gödel knew it. But I'm not so sure about Schrodinger and Heisenberg or de Broglie. Likely it was uh, something that they never considered. Having said that, John Calvin did not conceive that his superdeterministic predestination would eventually be fought in the arena of quantum physics. And this is Einstein, Poldolsky, and Rosen facing off against John Stuart Bell, Anton Zeilinger, Elaine Aspect, and John F. Clauser. So you have two sides here. We've always had two sides. We've had the Copenhagen School and the, and the Einsteinian positions and all the physics for many centuries, and all over a century now. And I, I like to look at it. I like to envision a 1960s Hollywood Western gunfight here. John Wayne, I got Robert Mitchum, James Kahn, Walter Brennan against Christopher George, Robert Duvall, and Claude Akins and Richard Boone. That's what I think's going on, and I, that's how I see it. It's a gunfight. And we know who wins, because who always wins? That's right, John Wayne always wins. 
uh, with the exception of Bruce Dern and Charles G. Martin. And use your phones and look those guys up and find out why they, because they won. And we all cried when that happened. Anyway, building a bit on last lecture, I brought up the principle of locality. I really don't have time to put a bunch of stuff on the board. If I do, it's just going to go into two hours and everyone will be asleep and it won't work. So you're just going to have to bear with me. But we have what's called the principle of locality. And what is the principle of locality and why is it so theologically decisive? And this discussion begins with the einstein poldowski rosen paradox. And that's, that's the title of John Stuart Bell's momentous thesis paper in 1964. He was the first one to call what the EPR, the einstein poldowski rosen he's the first, their position, he was the first one to call it a paradox. Uh, and Bell lit the fuse here because interjecting the word paradox interjects or brings in ambiguity and inconsistency. And that's exactly what he did to einstein poldowski rosens 1935 framework. You see, Einstein presented the locality principle. What's that? Which states a subatomic particle is only going to be affected. It's only going to be impacted by that which is in the immediate proximity. In other words, there has to be a closeness. To put another, other words, nearby stuff is all that interacts with nearby stuff. That's what Einstein says. Faraway stuff cannot provide a force or control on nearby stuff. Because faraway stuff is faraway stuff, and it's far away from nearby stuff. Does that make any sense to anybody? But that's locality. It has to be, you have to have proximity to me in order to influence me. I can't be influenced by anything of a great distance. So there's non-locality and locality. So how are we doing to this point? Is everybody still awake? Let me wait. Not, not terrible. 50% have gone down. Okay, pretend you're interested. I used to always tell my basketball teams when the kids would come up to me and say, Coach, which one, how can I get more play time? I'd tell them, playing time, I'd tell them, you have to pretend to like me more. I give, I give playing time to those who like me the most. So the same thing applies here. You have to pretend you're interested. The best pretenders, we're going to get cookies and Skittles and all that stuff. Like the Sunday school class. Yay. Okay. In addition, Einstein posited, Einstein, I can't say it correctly, but Einstein posited that all interactions, every interactions between particles are limited by the 299, 792, 458. Okay, the 299, 752. I gotta make sure I get it right because I always get it wrong. 792. See, see what happened to me? And I have to check myself because I'm old. 458. Everything, that is a inviolable situation. Nothing can interface, nothing can influence, nothing can affect. All things are limited by the speed of light. 299, 792, 458 meters per second. So that's set in stone, Mr. Einstein, nothing can interface, nothing can influence, nothing is faster than 299, 792, 458 meters per second, says Mr. Einstein. The speed of light cannot be infringed, it cannot be transgressed, it is never going to be, it is in control, if you want to say it that way. And Einstein continued, with this. He said, and if you seem, it was his position, if you seem, and if it seems by some quantum experiment, so if there's a guy doing a quantum experiment, uh, they call them Bell tests now, a Bell test after John Stuart Bell, for example. But if anybody has an experiment that appears to disobey the 299, 792, 458, there's got to be a hypothetical property. Remember that from last week? There has to be a hidden variable somewhere that the, inspir- the experimentalist has not accounted for. A hypothetical property, an unknown unknown. So there's a capability that the experimentalist has failed to detect that has impa- impacted this quantum experiment. Did that make any sense? In other words, if you have an experiment, if you're a quantum physicist and you're doing an experiment and something is in violation 
of the 299, 792, 458, then you don't know something, is what Einstein said. There's some hidden thing here. And so you have an uncompliant quantum test, and you can't have that. So, along again comes John Wayne Bell. I changed his name on purpose. Okay, it's a slight modification of John Stuart Bell. It's absolutely intentional and appropriate. John Stuart Bell had a response to, you don't know what you're doing if you have an experiment that does not, that in any way appears to violate the speed of light or in any way appears to bite in, I'm sorry, appears to violate locality. What's happened, Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen said, is that there's something that you don't know about, and so you're wrong based on what we think exists somewhere that we can't prove. But Bell, he didn't uh, comply. You will sign the papers. He did not sign the papers. So John Wayne Bell has his famous response. He said, if a hypothetical hidden property theory is local, it will not agree with quantum physics. And if it agrees with quantum physics, it will not be local. That was his response. He's saying that something can influence something that is at a distance that's incomprehensible, almost immeasurable. And so what what did he mean more than anything else. Well, everybody agreed, and everybody agrees that quantum predictions as they apply to location and direction and rotation. So photons and electrons, they have a spin to them. And when they are entangled, they, they spin together. And when one changes its spin direction, the other one instantly changes its spin direction, so they are non-locally entangled. And everyone agrees that quantum predictions uh, as they apply to direction and rotation, uh, are probabilistic. In other words, uh, we can only predict the probability of quantum product particles. We can never know anything. We can't know where they are, what direction they're going, what rate of speed they're moving. But we can predict it. We have an incomplete capability. And there you go. Is Kurt Gödel shows up in 1931, right? Incompleteness theorem. It's an, he's another giant. Uh, in this in this discussion, whenever you see whenever measurements are made or observed on protons, two entangled I'm sorry photons I should say I gotta get I keep confusing protons and photons verbally not intellectually. So whenever observations are made on two photons, two entangled photons. For example, the intercommunication between those photons is instant. So when one moves, the other one moves. They are in, they are entangled, and the communication, the intercommunication, is instant. And instant is what? I'll put it on the board. Instant is not two ninety nine seven ninety two four fifty eight. It is less than that. Instant is infinity. Infinity is faster than 299, 792, 458. And so, oops. We have a big oops. The distance between the two entangled particles is irrelevant because the intercommunication is immediate. It's extraneous. Instant is always instant. The created universe operates as a non-local entity. It operates as a consciousness, as Max Planck uh, proposed. So how fast is consciousness? How fast is a thought? Things that I asked last week. I know I'm repeating myself a bit. How about a prayer? I asked all of that in lecture 184. How much distance is traveled by prayer? Where is the throne room of Christ? When you pray, do you think you are heard instantly? Why do you think that? See, you agree with John Wayne Stewart Bell. That's why he's so important. Hopefully you can see the theological corollaries that are going to explode out of all of this kind of stuff. Perhaps uh, you read articles on the 2022 Nobel Prize for Physics this week. Who did it? Raise your hands. Uh, Why am I always the only one that reads these things? 
Uh, but I hope you have. I hope you look at those articles on the 2022 Nobel Prize for Physics because you get for every article you get a chocolate chip cookie. How about that? We'll try. We'll try bribery. If you had, if you had, or if you have, and some of you have, I know out there in the vast internet audience here, the Cliffsidians, you would have noticed the headline that came out right after this Nobel Prize was awarded, and that was Nobel. Prize winners prove that the universe is not real. And then another one, how the physicists prove the universe isn't real. Whoa. Remember George Berkeley, right? Remember we talk about George Berkeley? He was a very brilliant theologian. Anybody, McFly? Anybody remember that? He had one great contribution to theology and philosophy, and that was his proposal that there is no what? No physical reality. He could prove there is no physical reality. Therefore, if he proves that there is no physical reality, and again, let's go back. The universe is not real. How did the, how the physicists prove the universe isn't real? They are lined up with George Berkeley, who long ago said, a couple hundred years ago, that there is no physical reality. And so, therefore, if there's no physical reality, what, what reality is left? What did Max Planck say? There's only one reality. When you get it all to the bottom of all the physical particles, even the tiniest ones, you don't find physicality, you find consciousness. So the only reality is not the physical. The reality is the spiritual reality. There is no physical reality. That sums up George Berkeley. All things exist because of a consciousness that, that perceives them. That's called Berkeley's razor. You might know Occam's razor, but Berkeley's razor supersedes Occam's razor. And, and again, notice the similarity to Max Planck's position. I couldn't resist the headline that I read here recently. According to scientists, people do not come from Earth. And I go, well, yeah, you're right. People do not come from dust. What comes from dust? It isn't people. See, there's a, there's a mistake always made in theology and always made in, in all, any description. People do not come from dust. People do not come from earth. Well, duh. People are not the physical body. Personhood is not in the body. The body is a manifestation of the personhood, not the personhood. The person is the nefesh shahah, right? Genesis 2.7. Animals likewise. Genesis 120, 121, 124, 128, 130, 715, 722. Can't say that enough. The dog is not, in a, is not the body of the dog. The spirit of the dog is the dog. The spirit of the body is the, is the reality, not the body. People don't come from dust. People do not come from earth. The blessing of God, he has a blessing. It's not the body. It's the eternal spirit, mind, and the consciousness, Genesis 122. The body, again, what the body does is communicate what the mind is thinking. What the brain does is give information for the mind to consider, and the mind uh, regurgitates that information in a physical form. With a physical, uh, I'm doing it right now. Okay? I'm ex- telling you what my mind is thinking, which isn't always pleasant or interesting. The spirit of the breath of life is not of the earth. Ecclesiastes 12.7 makes it very, very clear. People do not come from the earth, the dust. Only the body comes from the dust. The spirit is put into the body, breathed into the body. God says that's what he does. But he puts the spirit. And where does the spirit come from and what is it made out of? It comes from him and it's made out of him. It's his It's God himself. He breathes it into the body. Note that the body is entangled with the spirit. Because that's how it works. It's called the mystery or the mind-brain problem. The mystery of the mind. The body is entangled with the spirit just like the photon is entangled with the photon. And the body and the spirit move instantaneously just like the photons do. How fast does your brain move? Is the question. Anyway, Einstein insisted that any non-local result must be attributed to the unknown unknown, the hidden, the speculative, the imaginary secret variable that he concocted. So he had a fudge factor. 
I can't figure out what this is. I can, you're saying that, it, that there is non-locality. I'm saying there is locality. I can't prove there's non-locality. Uh, or there's locality, I'm sorry. I can't prove there's locality. So I'm going to come up with something that just says I'm right. That's what they did in 1934. And John Wayne Stewart Bell had a response. If the locality outcome is dependent on the pretense of a concocted, unconfirmed property, then it is a mathematical problem. It's a mathematical constraint. And the mathematical constraint of Einstein's position is now referred to as the Bell inequality. So that's the beginning of understanding where this all comes together. The quant- and quantum mechanics repeatedly violates this mathematical constraint that Bell saw in Podolsky and Rosen and Einstein's position. And he and the only path for imaginary hidden variables to provide sustainable explanations of the predictions of quantum physics uh, is for these hidden variables, these imaginary things that Einstein invented in order to solve his issue. Uh, the only way this will work is that those hidden variables have to be interacting from great distances, which again violates his locality principle. Now, I know this hasn't gotten through very well, and that's okay. It will. It's beat them and beat them until they, they give up. You'll get the, if you get the vocabulary, eventually you will, you will be comfortable with it. And, and if the hidden variables, John, Wayne Stewart Bell said, and if these hidden variables of yours, Einstein, are causing this influencing from vast distances, then the hidden variables that you are proposing are are not local. They're instantaneous too. So your your hidden variables that you said is going to solve all the problems turn out solving the only problem uh, that we have, and that is is that they likewise violate the seven or the two nine nine seven ninety two four fifty eight. Now, there are people that are going to argue with me on that. They're going to say that it's not happening. Communication is not faster than light, and they'll cling to their, their light position. Uh, eventually, they'll come along, to my view. It just takes a while. Right now, every Bell test that's been done confirms that the physical system is controlled by non-locality. In other words, it operates at incredible distances instantaneously. That's what the system does. That's what the creation is doing. There is no local spurious variable. Spurious variable. There's none. Einstein was wrong. And that's what this 2022 Nobel Peace Prize, or I'm sorry, Physics Prize proved. Einstein is wrong. You'll see that headline. All tests that purport to confirm locality, they violate Bell's inequality theorem. Consider the mathematical constraint. They violate the mathematical constraint. The universe isn't... I said that wrong. Uh, let me say it this way. The universe is not locally real. Now, what's the question? Who made the universe? Say the right word and you get a skittle. Jesus. A skittle. A cookie. This is what he's done. He has made the universe this way so it's not locally real. And why has he done it is the question. Why is this so important of a discussion, Genesis 1? This is how he made it. He wanted it to be like this. I made the point last week that you were, he introduced randomness and uncertainty into the entire creation. So if you have a position that says there is no randomness, there is no uncertainty, the whole creation testifies against you. All of it. So your position now starts to look a little bit, uh, how do I put it, frayed, and perhaps it'll un- it'll, it might collapse on you. And it's fascinating to me that this discussion is a mathematical and a theological conflict. Exactly what I want. Why is the church not in the gunfight? Because the church of our time, it loves, it's addicted to the simple, it wants the stupid, it can't help but want to be stupid, it enjoys being stupid because stupid makes you money. How many people are going to give me money based on a lecture about John Wayne Stewart Bell? Not going to happen. 
I got to make you cry. I got to dance. I got to sing a lot. Maybe really loud music. Don't put unattractive people on the stage. You got to have attractive people. That's the old joke. You can always tell how attractive the pastor is by what the what the makeup of the front row is. I've never had much luck with that front row, so we all know. But why the church just won't get involved in this because they don't see any monetary value. Frankly, that's what's happening. They're addicted to the simple, the stupid. Revelation three fifteen through twenty two, Second Peter three eighteen, nineteen, Second Timothy four, three through four. They won't listen to anything that is complicated. They just won't do it. They won't have sound doctrine is complicated. When you find somebody say that doctrine, this is my doctrine, this is what I believe, and it's simple, they're wrong. A simple doctrine can never be true. Now they're going to say, well, Jesus saves is simple. No, it's not. It's not. Salvation is not simple. Judgment is deep. Mercy is deep. What, how de- what's the depth? The church of our time, again, is addicted to great swelling words of emptiness. They do not endure sound doctrine. They heap up teachers as stories and fables, and Christ will vomit these out. Revelation 3.16. Okay. How am I doing? That was the introduction. Okay, time to shift directions, or so it seems. But as as you know, all things will converge. How does he do it? I got a phone call last week from Luke from Ohio. And he had been listening to a lecture of mine from 2013. Where I apparently presented a similarity, if not an outright entanglement, between the two trees that confronted Adam and the two rocks smote by Moses. Because guess how much entanglement I find in the Bible. You know why I find a lot of it? Because I'm looking for it every single time. I find a verse, I want to find the the entangled verse. What I used to call the complement, but I'm changing now because of this 2022 physics thing, right? So I said apparently in 2013, and I don't remember anything that I said yesterday, so it's hard for me to comment on it, really. I'd have to look it up, and I've kept every single one of these I've ever written. There are millions of words now, and I have writer's cramp. There are piles of them, much to the dismay of the lovely Lori, who is running away in a couple of weeks, for a couple of weeks, in order to get away from the debris. And that's just how it is. It allows me more time and more freedom to do what? Make more debris. That's right. She's not, there's, no, there's no mathematical constraint on me at that point. Okay. I got this call from Luke from Ohio. He's hilarious. Uh, and apparently I said there's an outright entanglement between the two trees that confronted Adam and the two rocks smote, killed by Moses, right? I wrote, Moses kills two stones. Adam has two trees. And again, that entanglement reference is a clue to that I, I'm still in Bell's inequality, right? And just as it is patently evident that quantum and quantum 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 particle entanglement communication is embedded in in the entirety of the physical reality. Why? And of course, there is no physical reality. But I'm still calling it a physical reality just for the sake of people who are listening. Quantum particle entanglement communication is. Everywhere it is, the universe, the creation is marinated in this. The Holy Bible likewise demonstrates a ridiculous level of the same thing, entanglement communication. Verses communicate with each other all over the Bible. It is amazing. It's one of the great evidences that whoever wrote this book created this environment, right? This, we might call it a holograph or a hologram or whatever we want to call it. But whoever made the Bible made the universe. And it's overwhelmingly obvious. And it's something we should have always expected. Again, whoever designed subatomic particle entanglement obviously is the same one who wrote this book. Because he did it the same thing in that book. The communicative design of Scripture cannot neither be explained because it's incredible or denied because it's incredible. 
But the pattern is in plain sight. And again, he put it in what he created. Everything is the same. He's leaving a trail. He's leaving breadcrumbs and popcorn for us to figure out what he's doing. Why does he do it that way and not just put writing in the sky? What's his reason for making us dig for it and search for him? Why does he do that? Very important to know that. Anyway, Moses has two rocks and Adam's got two trees and they are entangled. And once again, the cuddly HTRP is right. We can move on. The defense rests. I can say it. Everybody will just accept it. I'm gone, right? No, they're not. I got cynics in the vast internet audience and some of them are wonderful people. And being a cynic is not a terrible thing. In fact, I consider it the highlight of my personality. But I know what the, the, the cynics are thinking. It's my job to know what the cynics are thinking. Uh, cynics no cynics. Uh, they are acrimoniously and caustically demanding that I provide evidentiary confirmation of my 2013 supposition that the rocks and the trees are together. And, and I should interject here that uh, Luke from Ohio, he agreed that 2013 is well beyond the statute of limitations with regard to my accountability. It's 2013. That's, that's 25 years ago or something like that. It's close, right? Well, uh, who, who knows? Who can do math? And we have the CLDA, the Cliffside Legal Defense Authority, is so decreed in 1998 that I have no liability beyond six months. And I agree with them completely. How, how would I go against them? They are amazing. And yes, patently evident and acrimoniously caustically are intentional redundancies. And I, I do that as a habit and people are trying to correct me, but I can't stop it. All right. Adam and Moses are both declared in Scripture to be direct portrayals of Jesus Christ. It's Romans 5.14, 1 Timothy 2.14, Deuteronomy 18.15. They are identified profoundly written in Scripture. These two are both types of Christ. We can infer it in others, but these two are absolutely identified in scriptures as type of Christ. That's an amazing thing. I keep using that word amazing. I'm going to have to put that on the do not say that word over and over again. Okay. So, there's that. The fact that we have two trees and we have two rocks indicates an overt visibility. God's making it clear. Even I can find two trees and two rocks. There's got to be something here, right? In other words, God laid it out for us. 1 Timothy 2.14 likewise makes it clear that Adam, undeceived by Satan, had a prepared, calculated response. He knew that the woman was vulnerable. He's a very intelligent human being. He names every single animal individually. It's unbelievable. So his mind, and he was put on display for the angels to see what he was capable of while he's doing that. It's an incredible thing. He had a prepared, calculation response. To Satan. He had a plan to save his beloved wife. That's Genesis 3.12. Therefore, Moses would likely have the same computation. Both men are prepared. So, can we agree that both Adam and Moses concluded that the best avenue with the situation they were in would be their own sacrificial death? They both had to think the same thing. Because God has put them together. Adam's Genesis uh, 3.12 and Moses' Numbers 20.11 have an equivalency. Adam ate the poison to save his wife. You've heard me make that comment many, many times. He's going to save his wife. That means his own death. She's already dead. So he's going to take the poison. He's going to eat the poison to save his wife. How does he save his wife? Go and look up some of my lectures. Moses killed the rock, smote the rock, twice to save the wife, the Israel of God, the wife Israel of God, because the bride, Israel is called the wife, right? Eve is the wife. Each man's love for the wife is at the center of what they're doing. It's the at the, at the crux of their intentions. Their strategy was to resign. In the case of Adam, as the federal head of the of humanity, he was going to resign because why would he resign? He had a terrible failure. What was his responsibility? Animals and the woman. How did he do? The woman is dead. He loses his job. He's fired. That's how he thinks. I guarantee it's how he thinks. I see it in the evidences that are there. This is the woman you gave me. And I, and she's dead. 
Whose fault is it? It's my fault. He took complete, total responsibility. For her actions, that makes him a what? Type of Christ. Had to be true based on Romans 5.14. So Adam resigned as the federal head of the humanity and Moses resigned as the prophet of Israel. And they both knew that their resignations would include death. Genesis 2.17, Numbers 22-4. And once again, the wife of Adam brought the poison to him. And we don't know how much time expired, but she brought it to him. He was not with her. I've proven that many, many times in my so-called career. She was alone when she was with, with Satan. She went alone to be with Satan. Adam did not go with her, and that is why he resigns. And she brings the poison, the death, and lays it at his feet. And, and, and I believe as the similarity, the similarity will be with the nation of Israel. They gather together to murder Moses. That's what they're doing, Romans 21 through 12. And there, there's, get this failure of Adam or the, what, what are the, what's that, that rotten book that was written? <sighs> the something of Adam. The silence of Adam. Oh gosh, you can't be more wrong. Again, the silence of Adam is a simple position. It is not a complex position. Therefore, it cannot, it's immediately invalidated because it's too elementary to be true. Adam is a type of Christ. And in my, again, my position that the, the wife of Adam brings death to Adam, lays it at his feet, as does the nation of Israel. They gather together again to murder Moses and Aaron. They're going to kill them both because they had failed. And Moses knew they had failed. And Aaron knew that they had failed. And they intentionally take a, the same course of action as Adam. There is no failure of Adam. There is no error of Moses. The absolute opposite of that is truth. Both resigned because they looked inward and accepted responsibility for the failure of their wives. In this case, the wife of Adam and the wife of, of God. They had the responsibility. And both women, if you want to think of it that way, are dead. And as with Christ, Moses was surrounded by those who wanted him dead. Read the, read the text. Numbers 21 through 12. They wanted Moses dead, just as they wanted Christ crucified and dead, right? And God, I'm sorry, Moses disobeys God. And Moses was certain that when he disobeyed God, that God would respond in a way, he had it all planned out. God would respond in a certain way when I disobey him. What was the way that Moses thought that God would respond? He thought that God would not bring water from the rock. I'm going to smote the rock twice. What's that mean? The rock is Christ. That means that Christ dies twice? Makes no sense. That's a, that's a doctrinal uh, perversion. So Moses knew that. He's incredibly intelligent. Both of these, you have to say to yourself, I'm dealing with grandmasters here. I'm not dealing with 400 ELOs. I'm dealing with guys of 3,000. I'm dealing with incredible intelligence. And they have thought all these things through. And if you have a position where they're just emotionally responding like, like children, then you're wrong again. Stop it. Don't love the simple. Start thinking about these things in, a, in the way that God intended us to think, in my opinion, and I'm always right, so there we go. Moses was certain that no water would come from the, when the rock was struck because the rock is Christ, 1 Corinthians 10.4. But God released the water anyway. Why did he do that? Yeah, John 10, 17 through 18. What is John 10, 17 through 18? No one can kill Christ. Except who? Except God. No, no one can kill God. The only one that can kill God is God. And how does God kill God? God kills himself. So you see again, that's what Adam was doing. That's what Moses is doing. And these two events are the love of Adam and Moses and their sacrificial resignations. That's what they're both about. They are, what want to think about it, they're presidents or kings or whatever position you wish, of authority you wish, and they resign. As soon as their wives are dead, they're going, we're done. I failed my job. God should, God should fire me. What hap- ultimately happens, of course, is that Moses won't let anybody kill. I'm sorry, that God won't let anybody kill Moses. God kills Moses. And the same for for Aaron. The best way in the world to die is to be taken up on a mountain and, and 
God kills you. Because you'll know it's an incredible experience. Both of them got that experience. So how's that for a job? Uh, uh, how do you put that? <sighs> reference. Job reference. What a great, great honor. And I submit that God honors both men. Genesis 3:21 through 22. Behold, the Adam has become like one of us. And that's the Elohim. He says, the, the Adam has become like one of us. And I've always asked the question, which one of the us did he become like? Obviously, he became like the second person. God the Son, right? And Deuteronomy 35 through 10 describes the mosaic complement to Genesis 3, 21 through 22. And note that Israel wept for Moses. Moses, whom the Lord God knew face to face, and Adam, who became like one of the Elohim. Look at that. It's either the same thing. And I suspect that the woman, the Eve, Eve the woman, wept in shame, obviously. I, I think that's clear. There's a mountain of material to consider with respect to Adam and Moses. I just, just because Luke is so hilarious. But it fits, doesn't it? Because once again, you find the Bible having the same pattern as the creation and the same pattern as your body and your mind and your spirit and your brain and all of those things. He has stuck them together in a way we can't figure out. We can't get them apart. The only one who can get the body and the mind separated is Him. He does it. He takes the body. Ecclesiastes 12.7. I'm sorry, takes the mind. But we're going to go now in a different direction, which is still the same direction, right? I say it's a different direction. It's more of a, a joke. Oh, and I'm doing pretty good here. If you haven't noticed, and why would anyone notice, I am proposing that existence is at the core of the Calvinistic Arminianism discussion. It's existence. They're fighting over existence. They think it's salvation, but they're not. They're fighting over what existence that they have. Where did their existence come from? It really is not a debate. Both of them end up being in the same position, and that position is that God is evil. Both of them do it. God is evil because He can't, Keep me secure in my salvation. I'll lose my salvation guaranteed and I'll go to hell that way. The other one said you're predestined to go to hell. So both of them say that God is evil. And so both of them therefore are grievously in error. They're on the same side of error. And and again, Supper Dave and I were talking about both Jacobus Arminius and John Calvin had very limited information. I don't know if it's because they didn't find the verses that testified to the opposite of their positions or they didn't care to look for them. They came to a position and they said, my position is right. I don't care what anybody says. And I don't care what the evidence might say. I'm not going to look at it. We're going to stick to this and we're going to stick to it forever. And they have for almost 450 years. Uh, But they're talking about existence. And over the years, many, many, many times, almost to the point of exhaustiveness, I have said that the lie of Satan, Ezekiel 28.16, that's the abundance of his traffic. That is the metastasization of Satan's lie. That is, that's the nucleus here. The lie of Satan. And the lie of Satan is that nothing has existence. That's what Satan says. There is no existence. God did not give existence. He gave a facsimile of it and he's pretending. It's not really existence. It's a temporal state and annihilation awaits. That's the lie of Satan. Essentially, Satan is arguing that God is lying. Genesis 3, 4, that's what he says to Eve. God is lying. And when you take the fruit, you'll find out he's lying. He doesn't want you to know he's lying. What is he lying about? He's lying about existence. Ultimately, Satan says, none have life. Good and evil are constructs of God himself. That's what Satan says. Genesis uh, 3, 4. That's exactly what the hyper-Calvinist, super-deterministic philosophy or doctrine, whatever, I can't call it a doctrine. That's exactly what it says. The two are, are mirrors. And so if you look at what um, Satan says to the woman, he says, uh, you will know essentially good from evil. And so you can translate good from evil, you can directly 
translated that uh, Satan is saying God causes good and evil. And again, that's word for word. Is it not of the hyper-confidentistic belief system? Word for word. God causes evil. And if there is none with existence, there's none of us, no animal, no person, no angel that has existence. No existence. And I, I don't design, uh, define existence as a physical form. I define existence as spiritual eternity. The only thing at issue is the destination. If nothing has existence, and every, then everything is absurd, everything is futile, everything is pointless. Remember the test. Did you pass the test? Remember the test, Ecclesiastes 3.18? Remember the test that God gives for humanity and angels. Man and animals are the same. I got it. Thank you. Both have been given. Both have been given His breath of life, the spirit of the the breath of the spirit of life. Both have existence. That's what He says in Genesis 3:18. Only the body goes to dust from which it came. Genesis 2:7. Ecclesiastes 12:7. But God has given existence, and existence must come from the one who exists. That's why He calls Himself the I Am. I Am the self-existent One is what that word means in the in the Hebrew. I am the one who has existence and I have given it to you. If the existent one gave his existence to mankind, animals, and angels, I asked this question last week and I've said it many times, did he include his will? Did he only give existence but he didn't give will? Does that make any sense? See, if he only gave existence but he didn't give will, how simple is that of a concept? Obviously he didn't stop there. He gave his existence and he gave his will. Free will is welded to existence. I said it. It's unequivocally true. Yes, he gives it. He did it. Existence and free will, inseparable, intrinsic. And I repeat all of that because there's those who are newly listening, at least one or two, maybe one. Anyway, I've been going all over the place throughout the Word of God, His Word, asking questions as to the implications of verses that are obviously counterintuitive to the extremities of Calvinism and Arminianism. And I think that they are overlooked. And I think Jacobus Arminius overlooked it for any number of reasons. And John Calvin overlooked them for any number of reasons. And I think that's a great shame. I'll give you an example. Genesis 2, 19 and 20. God is going to put Adam on display. He's got a new creation, a sentient, existent being. He is combating the lie of Satan here. It says there is no existence. There is no... Uh, everything is an automation. And people overlook Genesis 2, 19-20. Here's what it says. God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. I want you to think about that. He brings all of these animals, every beast and every bird. And then it says this, and whatever Adam called, and this is a fantastic word, each. What does each mean? means each. That's amazing, isn't it? Each means each. Every individual living creature. And whatever Adam called every individual living creature, Nefesh Kahaya again, that was its name. He doesn't say that was their name. He said that's its name. So all of these creatures are brought to the... How long did this take? How long was he there? Giving names to every single animal. How many animals were there? And again, the angels are watching because why are the angels watching? Because the lie of Satan, Ezekiel 28.16. This debate's been going on at a level we cannot even begin to imagine. God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air. How many is every? It's a lot. Brought them to Adam to see. That's another great word. To see. My exclamation point didn't work there. Make them longer. Make the dots better. Working on it. 
what did God want to see? What does see imply? God brings a multitude of animals and birds. Adam individually names each one. Creator, Lord God Almighty, the YHVH, wanted to see what Adam would call them. What does Adam have? Did God give him a list and say, this is your list and you call him what's on the list? No. He wanted to see what Adam would call them. Why? What's God portraying here? He wanted to, God wanted to witness. God delights in this. This is something that he loves. He loves Adam. He wants to see what Adam's thinking. Does he know? Obviously he knows, but he wanted to see, he wanted to witness what Adam would choose to name each living soul, Revelation 2.17, where we, he has a name for every one of us and a name for every animal and a name for every angel. We don't know what our name is. We're going to find out. We're going to get some hidden man on a white rock, right? And a new name. The most obvious of the obvious questions, what is implied by Genesis 2.19? Why did God want to see what names Adam would conceive, formulate, assign, devise, envision, originate? Choose your favorite verb. All I listed, uh, all the ones I listed advocate for Adam's free will. Which I submit was the purpose of the whole exercise in the first place, right? He has the angelic host watching this because they have believed the lie of Satan. A third of them have. And now here we go. He's not just proving to us. He's proving to them. Undoubtedly, the angelic realm was watching Adam's display of capability, but also his display of his will. God was allowing his will. God wanted to see. Can God shut off his omniscience? It's an interesting question. Can he disregard his omniscience? If you say he can't, you're in an interesting position. If you say he, he, he can, you're in an interesting position. Something we'll have to debate next week. Long ago when I was a diabolical youth of 50, I would ask the super-deterministic Calvinists if they were grateful to be predestined. I say, are you grateful? Are you grateful to be pre-selected by God for salvation? And they unanimously stepped on the tongs of the rake. I never had one that didn't step on it. Boy, it went So, am I evil? Yeah, I am. Yes, they would enthusiastically respond. Which is the right answer? Good for them. They got the right answer. But wait for it. What exactly is gratitude? Do you have gratitude? What is it? What is gratefulness? How does one become thankful? What is the gratified process? Is it compelled? Is it involuntary? Am I forced to be thankful? If gratitude and thankfulness is a result of compulsion, is it authentic? Is it true? Is it, does it have any value? Does God seek sycophancy? If, if you say that he does, and they do say that he does, why would he do that? What kind of person wants sycophancy? What have you said about his character? Does it, does it comport with Psalm 35? Or is it 36? I can't remember. 5 through 7. How about humility, James 4.10? Where are, I'm sorry, we are to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. That's what he says for us to do. Can humility be coerced? What is the humility process? What about Philippians 2.12-13? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out. And notice he doesn't say work for your own salvation. That's an, uh, an idiot position. He says work out. What is workout? Is it exercise? Why must we respect and tremble over God's salvation process, His mercy? Again, we're back to Psalm, let me make sure I get it right, 36, 5 through 7. I invert the 5 and the 6 all the time. We're told to work out God's salvation process. How much work is that? 
Because it isn't simple. We have to concentrate. We have to think about it. We have to consider every aspect of it. Stop loving the simple. Abandon the simple. Calvinism is simple. Armenianism is simple. They're not working out God's so great sound. They're not fear and trembling. They're just throwing a bunch of gunk. It's not that easy. The omniscient, infinite God has devised a salvation process that is amazing. It's multifaceted. It is complex. And we're supposed to work it out. And not just grab low-hanging fruit that you don't even understand. Next week. Oh, i got more next week here. i got another page. Next week, the deluge is coming. The regeneration, monsterism, the order of the salvation, the salvific system. What's the correct order? How does Joel 2.32 fit? Joel 2.32, Romans 10.13 is fantastic. Does does hyper-Calvinism harmonize with Joel 2.32, Romans 10.13? The quick answer is no, it doesn't. That's a problem. Okay, so November 13th. Bring a lunch.